Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Interactions, a podcast about law and religion and how they interact in the world around us. Today, we'll hear from Dr. Isaac Weiner of Ohio State University about the interesting questions religious corporations pose for law and religion. The term religious corporation might sound counterintuitive or even paradoxical. What does it mean for a corporation to be considered religious? And why would it matter whether a corporation is religious or not? But religious corporations occupy a significant space of exemption in U.S. law. Multiple high-profile Supreme Court decisions over the past decade have involved religious corporations, most notably the craft store Hobby Lobby. And these cases have huge implications, not only for the religious liberty of businesses, but also for the religious other rights of individual citizens. Uh, it's very difficult to draw a bright line between what makes a corporation religious or secular. It might seem obvious, maybe we're just talking about churches, but the circle quickly expands. We can think about religious schools or religious nonprofits. And then we can talk about for-profit companies as well, that today many business owners see their businesses as extensions of their selves and their identities, and they believe they should run their businesses in line with their religious values and teachings and their dictates of their religious consciences. What makes a corporation religious? And is it possible that all corporations are, in some sense, religious enterprises? Stick around to find out. I'm Janet Metzger, and this is Secular Corporations, Religious Subjects by Dr. Isaac Weiner. What is a religious corporation? Over the past 10 years, there have been a number of high-profile U.S. Supreme Court decisions that make this question, this question of what a religious corporation really is, incredibly important to define. Why? Because religious corporations possess certain exemptions in U.S. law. For example, there's what is called the ministerial exception— it was elaborated in the case of Hosanna Tabor Evangelical Lutheran Church and School versus EEOC, as well as in the case of Our Lady of Guadalupe School versus Morrissey Baru. Basically, the ministerial exception shields religious organizations from having to follow anti discrimination laws when it comes to their employment relations with ministers. This category of ministers, however, has been expanded by courts to apply to a wide range of personnel far beyond clergy. This exemption has even been applied to workers who weren't actually eligible to become clergy within the denomination of the very organization claiming the exemption. Then there's the well-known case of Burwell versus Hobby Lobby stores, where in 2014, the Supreme Court found that a privately held for-profit corporation actually qualified as a person under the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. 
Hobby Lobby was thus exempted from having to follow the Affordable Care Act's contraceptive mandate. And finally, in several rulings in 2020, the court struck down COVID-19-related public health directives so that they didn't apply to religious institutions. What's interesting to note about all of these legal cases is that, strikingly, organizations often find greater success than an individual person would when seeking protection under the law for their religious rights of conscience. Religious corporations, then, are incredibly powerful. If their corporate religious liberty is to be respected, and if they are to enjoy such an exceptional status outside the law, then it seems obvious that we would need to decide exactly what kinds of corporations fit under the designation of religious corporation. But this is where the issue becomes complicated. Both terms, religious and corporation, are notoriously difficult to define. We could understand the term corporation narrowly, as referring only to those entities that have formally incorporated under the law. Or we could conceive of the term corporation more broadly, such as encompassing any social collectivity or any group. But the difficulty doesn't end there. We would then have to decide what exactly makes a corporation religious a question that is far more tenuous. Is religious corporation just another word for a church? Or does it include for-profit entities like Hobby Lobby? In either case, how should the beliefs and practices of a religious corporation be defined? Would the corporation's official beliefs merely be the beliefs of the business owners and the members? Or is it possible that corporate bodies have an existence of their own that exceeds that of the individuals who constitute them. So here we have the nebulous case of religious corporations. They can't exactly be defined, but they hold a huge amount of power given their exceptional status to the law, which makes this problem of defining what they are all the more crucial. We'll be right back after the break. Hi, Interactions listeners. This is Justin Latterell at the Center for the Study of Law and Religion. If you like this episode and want to learn more about the interactions of law and religion around the world, check out the link to our book brochure in the podcast description. There you'll find over 40 new titles like God and the Illegal Alien by Robert Heimberger and Michael Perry's new book on human rights, democracy, and constitutionalism. Each title includes a short description and a link to buy the book online. Thanks for listening to Interactions.
Given the difficult problem of how to define a religious corporation, legal scholars will often begin by drawing a distinction between what are considered the obvious cases, such as churches and religious schools, and the more borderline cases, like for-profit companies. For critics of the Hobby Lobby decision, one of the key problems with recognizing Hobby Lobby as a religious organization boiled down to its commercial activity. In her dissent, Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg cited a lower court decision which found that for-profit corporations are different from religious nonprofits in that they use labor to make a profit rather than to perpetuate the religious values shared by a community of believers. For Ginsburg, the profit motive is what distinguishes Hobby Lobby from the more obviously religious institutions involved in ministerial exception cases. And yet, this distinction, based on whether a corporation is for-profit or not, seems untenable. Who's to say that religious organizations can't also be commercial entities? And since when? Historians of American religion have offered us examples again and again of groups who blended their religious and commercial commitments seamlessly. Take John Wanamaker and his iconic Philadelphia department store that was famed for its extravagant and Protestant holiday displays. Or consider the case of Rick Warren, an evangelical whose book, The Purpose Driven Life, spent 90 weeks on the New York Times bestseller list. All of this goes to show that profit and religion are far from mutually exclusive. Today, we would hardly bat an eye on hearing a successful entrepreneur describe herself as a spiritual explorer whose medium just happens to be business, which is exactly how Susie Batiz of Poo-Pourri described herself to the New Yorker. If we are to guarantee certain rights in the name of religion, that would mean requiring the state to draw sharp lines between religion and non-religion. But the mere presence of a profit motive is hardly a stable foundation for doing so. Recent scholarship in religious studies has begun to excavate the genealogical linkages between religion and the corporate form itself. Amanda Porterfield, for example, traces the history of the corporation to ancient Rome and the beginnings of the Christian religion. In her book, Corporate Spirit, she demonstrates how ideas about incorporation developed in tandem with theological accounts of the Church as the mystical body of Christ. In a related vein, Winifred Fowler's Sullivan has written a book called Church-State Corporation, which explores the interdependence of church, state, and corporation in U.S. law, and reveals the ways these three things function as co-regulators of individual conscience and freedom. And in a recent article in the Journal of the American Academy of Religion, four scholars of Japanese religion urge us to pay greater attention to the corporate form as a way of understanding how people create institutions 
and how institutions organize and constitute individuals in ways that both are and are not explicitly marked as religious. These are only a few out of hundreds of examples that all point to this. Drawing a bright line between religious and non-religious corporations seems thoroughly unsustainable. We will now be hearing from Dr. Isaac Weiner himself as he describes an encounter he had with a supermarket checkout clerk that illustrates this very question. How do we draw a distinction between religious and non-religious corporations? I've been interested in the unintended ways that otherwise secular corporations can shape moral consciences and constitute religious subjects just like religious corporations do, in part through how they respond to secular legal mandates. Legal accommodations can produce the very claims of conscience they are meant to protect. Stay tuned. A few years ago, I wrote an article for the Journal of the American Academy of Religion, in which I analyzed a chance encounter I had with a supermarket checkout clerk, a young African-American man who was struggling to decide how he felt about participating in transactions involving emergency contraceptive products. I met him on a Monday morning in 2013. I had stopped by my local Kroger grocery store just to pick up some eggs and milk. And totally out of the blue, he began speaking to me, asking me whether I thought it was sinful to handle what he described as the abortion pill. Seeing the look of confusion on my face, he explained a little further that the next day, his store was going to begin selling Plan B emergency contraception over the counter. On the previous Saturday, the managers of his store had assembled all of the clerks in the back room and asked if any of them had religious or moral objections to handling this product. And if so, they could simply ask to have a different cashier ring up the sale in their place. So the customer would still get their product, and the cashier would not have to touch it or handle the transaction themselves. His managers were offering the supermarket employees a pretty straightforward and relatively commonplace form of religious accommodation. What was notable about my interaction with him, though, was how his store managers had offered that accommodation proactively. Under Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, businesses are required to offer reasonable accommodations for the religious beliefs and practices of their employees, unless doing so would create undue hardship on the conduct of the employer's business. Typically, the burden falls on an employee to alert their employer about a potential conflict and then work with the employer to come up with a reasonable accommodation. In the case of the supermarket clerk, however, it was the managers who had first reached out to their workers, asking if any of them might have objections to handling emergency contraception. It was the employers who went out of their way to ascertain whether any of their employees might require a particular accommodation. 
We could explain this by turning to the politics of religion and sex in the United States and try to understand how decades of debate about emergency contraception had come to mark this particular product as uniquely sensitive and controversial. But the manager's proactive accommodation also reveals important changes in how corporations manage workplace diversity. For a long time, management literature on workplace diversity tended to ignore religion, treating it as an essentially private matter or as too sensitive to address directly. This has changed in recent years. Scholars and business leaders from a variety of fields have called for taking more seriously the critical ways that religion shapes and is shaped by the secular workplace. Management experts have encouraged employers to take precisely the kinds of proactive measures that I described in my interaction with the supermarket checkout clerk, to take precisely those kinds of proactive measures in order to build more inclusive workplaces. By going out of their way to accommodate the spiritual and religious needs of their employees, businesses can make their workers feel valued and connected without disrupting commercial activity. Religious accommodations can serve to integrate a diverse and disparate workforce, all while bolstering the corporation's bottom line. But such proactive accommodations can also create the very problems they are meant to address. In the case of my supermarket interlocutor, he explained to me how it had never occurred to him before to object to handling any particular products until his managers posed the question to him directly. He had never taken time to reflect on the theological and moral implications of his work. As he thought about whether it was wrong to facilitate the sale of emergency contraception, he also began to wonder were there other products too, like alcohol or tobacco, which might be equally or even more objectionable? Could the Bible offer him any guidance for wading through such ethically fraught dilemmas? He told me how over the past day or two, he had posed each of those questions to his pastor at church in, those, in that time since meeting with his store managers. And then, after speaking with his pastor the next morning, he turned and posed those questions directly to me, his customer, seeming to look to any source at hand for answers. His manager's well-intentioned efforts to accommodate the religious and spiritual needs of their employees had given rise to a full-on crisis of conscience. In responding proactively to a secular legal mandate, the supermarket managers had recast the workplace as a site of ethical self-formation and development, a space in which claims of conscience were not simply brought, but were actually constituted and cultivated. What seems notable to me in the end is not the particular decision that this checkout clerk made, and in fact, I don't even know what decision he made. What's more interesting to me are the broader effects that his company's policies had enacted. In responding proactively to a secular legal mandate, the supermarket managers had recast the workplace as a site of ethical self-formation and development, as a space in which claims of conscience were constituted and cultivated, rather than to which they were brought already fully formed. They had invited their workers to reimagine their labor as a proper subject for moral reflection and spiritual growth. And at the same time, their accommodations served to integrate a diverse workforce into a single collective, joined together to pursue a common mission, 
which happened to be dictated by the imperatives of a capitalist market. So I offer this example just to suggest one way among many that corporations, including both those deemed religious and those deemed secular, engage in projects of what we might call person-making. Through their practices, policies, and protocols, organizations and collectivities, including for-profit corporations, form subjects, make persons, and shape consciences. They can do so in ways intended or unintended, and in ways that go recognized or unrecognized. But in either case, they play important roles in shaping what it means to live with and among others. What are we to call such projects if not religious? Or put otherwise, might we not think of all corporations as in some sense religious enterprises? If there can be no coherent way to draw a bright line between religious and non-religious for the purposes of U.S. law, then perhaps the question we ought to be asking is not what makes a corporation religious, but rather what makes any collective formation worth building, sustaining, and protecting, regardless of the label we ultimately ascribe to it. That was Secular Corporations, Religious Subjects by Dr. Isaac Weiner. You can find the full article on Canopy Forum by following the link in the episode description. Canopy Forum and the Interactions podcast are distributed by the Center for the Study of Law and Religion at Emory University and produced by Anna Knudsen. I am your narrator, Janet Metzger. You can follow Canopy Forum on Twitter or Facebook and subscribe to Interactions on your favorite podcast platform. Thank you for listening.